This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 from verse 1 to verse 13. And the last time we were really blessed, we had a two-sermon series with the healing of Jairus' daughter and also the woman with the flow of blood. And we really got to kind of get to know them as we read the scripture to really empathize with them in their situation and maybe even make some parallels in our own lives. And this morning, we're going to start chapter 6, which is a large chapter, but we're only going to cover 13 verses, and we're going to break this chapter up into really three sermons. And the uh, name of the message is Ministry the Lord's Way. Ministry the Lord's Way. Did you ever wonder why so many churches and denominations do ministry so many different ways? Did you ever wonder if there was at least some type of standard or guideline um, so that we don't stray from what the Lord would prefer versus what we would prefer? Well, you don't have to look any further than in God's word, the Holy Scripture. We see Jesus. We really find out about his teachings. Um, You know, the Scripture gives us the answers to all of life's problems. And what's really neat is this isn't just for ministry. It's not just for elders or pastors or pastors' wives. This is for everyone. I mean, there is a lot about ministry, but there's also a lot about discipleship, which if we've been a Christian for some time, we should desire for ourselves. And then maybe as we mature that we would desire to disciple others. Um, We can just talk about how every Christian is endowed with some spiritual gift. Just like as you're born in the natural world, you have natural abilities. When you're born again, there's some spiritual abilities that God gives as well. And he expects us to use them. He expects us to bear fruit. John 15 tells us that. So as we go into this, I think that we're going to be blessed with really a historic look, but also an applicable look and how we can apply these things to our lives. So let's jump in. Verse 1. It says, Then he, Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. I tell you, that one verse is really packed because to call him the son of Mary in that society was actually an insult. Who is this guy, this son of Mary? Well, you may say, well, Pastor Joe, well, maybe they believed in the virgin birth. Well, if they did, then they certainly wouldn't be um, criticizing or wondering how he could do these things. So it's either one or the other. The other thing that's interesting is his brothers and sisters are named in uh, Matthew's gospel. You know, there's denominations out there that say Jesus was the only child. That's not true. It was a a virgin birth. That's clear. But there was also brothers and sisters that were born afterwards. So you kind of see you, as we go through the scripture, you separate church dogma or doctrines established by men for their own particular reasons versus what the scripture actually says. Remember, this is a biography of Jesus, these, these gospels. And and he said, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. That actually happened with the Old Testament prophets as well. The closer they were to the people, that familiarity breeds contempt. And we'll talk about that. Now, he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. We see this twice in scripture that I, that I know it's recorded of. He was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So Jesus comes into Nazareth. It's a place where he grew up. Remember, he's fully God and fully man. He existed from eternity past, chose to take the form of a man. This is the place that he chose to be born. This was the geography. This was his hometown. And this is his interesting response that he receives. How does he have such, number one, wisdom? Number two, teaching. Number three, ability to do miracles. This is further proof that people judge by externals. And they still do it today. Looking to the outward, the Bible tells us, where God looks inside. Not being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, which is not an exercise in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is, is God's Spirit. Is something in John 3 that Jesus talks about that works beyond the, the visual realm and the audio realm. The sensual realm, so to speak. The Holy Spirit works in a way that defies empirical data. Right? You know, and, and really, he work, works beyond people's feelings and opinions. But Jesus didn't go the way they expected. He didn't go to the right schools. And it's no different today. How do we in the Christian realm judge somebody? Do we say, well, maybe if they have thousands of people, it must be legitimate? There's, there's these discussions we have within Calvary Chapel where people are still judging by appearance, and they're not judging by what the Holy Spirit would say. Even when Calvary Chapel started, way back well, some five decades ago, those who were in the established religion out in California, that the churches were starting to die, uh, they scoffed at Calvary Chapel. And probably some jealousy was at the root. Where's your seminary? Where's your masters of divinity? I've even seen it with myself. Did we have that with the disciples? You didn't, you didn't study under this person. You didn't go to the right teachers. Do we ever really change, folks, whether it's uh, hundreds of years or thousands of years? People still make the same errors time after time after time. And that's why we need the word to ground us. It's a grounding rod. Again, another maxim is familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus said, at least one point I remember in the scripture, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, trust me, if I said that, a few hands would go up. But Jesus said that and nobody could answer him because he was sinless. But they still, because of their familiarity with him, there was a, there was a lack of respect or, or lack of at least insight into the Holy Spirit of who this person was. And I got to tell you that even some new ways that we have in addressing God. Listen, God is familiar to us. He is our, our father. He's our friend. He's our counselor. But there's some new ways. He's not our pal or our buddy or uh, you know, some of the words used to express God. That's, a, that's really disrespectful. Make sure we understand that respect has to come with the way we address God. So what did Jesus do? He withdrew. He withdrew from those that were not interested in him. Right? And, and he does this. The God will do this. He'll do it individually. He'll do it regionally. And he'll do it by country. So where does that leave the United States? You know, we have a, really a nation of oligarchs, men and women in black robes, who decide by divine fiat that they're going to change laws that they're going to kick God out of the schools, that they're going to do all these things. So where does that leave the United States? I'll tell you this, that in Ephesians 5, the Bible is clear. When we talk about a relationship between 
a husband and his wife, that the wife responds to love. And when she senses a lack of love, she starts to withdraw and close down. And that a man, he wants to be the hero, that he responds to respect. And then when he feels disrespected, he starts to withdraw. And then you have this, this problem in the relationship because the basic needs of the husband and wife are not being met. Can anybody tell me what God responds to in the relationship that we have for him? Faith. God responds to faith. When it says that Jesus did, couldn't do many miracles, does it mean he wasn't potent enough to do miracles? No. It means that God responds to faith. And he'll meet us where we're at. Where we're at. We can start with some people, they walk up to the front. They, they know that there, there's something going on spiritually that compels them to come forward to receive Jesus. Their faith is very little, but God responds to that little bit of faith, and he wants to grow it over time. God responds to faith. So where are we this morning? The more faith we have in God, the more we believe in him. Right? What does that mean? We trust, we rely, we have confidence in him, the more he responds to us. And that's a relationship, believe it or not. Now, before we move on to the next few verses... There's a little historical note here, too, in that this appears to be the Lord's second rejection at Nazareth, the first one being in Luke chapter 4. We covered that when we went to Luke's gospel. You've got to give Jesus credit. He was persistent. <laughs> he was persistent, and I believe that his persistence was motivated out of love. However, there was a point in time where he did have to withdraw. You know, it's like that expression, don't throw pearls before swine. Pearls, the message of salvation, God's word. I mean, back then, pearls were, were it. That was the thing. But you just think about the most priceless, amazing value of something, and God's word has more value than that. So if we say we don't want it, he's like, okay, I'm not going to shove it down your throat. See, God can't win in the, in the court of public opinion. Because if God was to force us to love him, which he doesn't, we would say he's overbearing, he's an ogre, he's a stalker by today's standards. However, if we say, and this is the truth, that God has given us free will as free moral agents, and he lets us decide whether we want to let him into our lives or not, and something goes wrong and there's a tragedy, we get mad. Where was God? Well, you, you didn't want me to overpower you, and now I'm giving you the choice and you didn't want me. What do you expect? It's, it's ridiculous. We think about that in our minds. And I've had some come to me and honestly say, when I went through my tragedy, I, wasn't, I never turned to God, and, and I can't blame anybody but myself. So this is what's going on. So verse 7, continuing. It says, And he called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he also said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's scary. Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't have a whole lot of, well, didn't have the Messiah, of course. They did wicked things and they were judged. And Jesus said, well, how much more a city or a nation or a region that has the light of God willing to come in that the people know right from wrong because of the Lord and they, they turn him away. 
Again, where does that leave the United States? We see our culture imploding upon itself. We need to pray, not necessarily for different political candidates to get in, but we need to pray for revival. We need to do it from the ground up. We try to do it from the top down in this country, and here's the problem. Top down, politicians tell you what, they want, what you want to hear. From the ground up, if there's a groundswell and revival and the people say, we don't want this in our nation, then the politicians will follow them, and we, it will change. Kingdom Now Theology teaches the opposite. It's top down, and it's never worked. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So here we get a, a, a glimpse of how the Lord commissions his disciples, and for an exhaustive teaching, we go to Matthew 10, and I'll pull out a few things from Matthew 10. So it's more, more detail-oriented that Jesus spoke there, and we covered that in Matthew. But there's an underlying theme here, really, too, of, of discipline. You know, you want to follow the Lord? It can't be feckless. It can't be flighty. It can't be feelings-oriented. It has to be, there's got to be a little bit of discipline. And, and, and we can look at our, our personal lives and our relationships, in our jobs, in our careers. We, we employ discipline, don't we? Why would we give God anything less? So let's check this out. The first thing he does is he sends them out two by two. This is the principle of accountability and more than one witness. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Now these are very important things today and things that we try to employ in Calvary chapels. If you ever look at some of these lone wolf ministries where there's a guy going out by himself or um, it's not a matter of time before you find out that the person gets themselves into trouble. There's a lack of accountability there. There's a lack of witness. I want to add, I want to move actually from physical to mental when it comes to accountability as well. Sometimes we can create little kingdoms in our own minds. We can put up the bricks, we can put up the gun turrets, the force fields, and, and play the game, but keep everybody out. When, in our thoughts, when we're alone and unaccountable, it can be very deceptive and very dangerous. And then several months later, we find ourselves in a bad place and wonder how it happened. It started with the deception of the mind. We all need Christian friends, good, solid Christian friends, to tell us when we run something by them, are you losing your mind? <laughs> I mean, listen, in some form or another, have you, you heard that? Are you crazy? What, are you kidding me? You know, you're going off the deep end. That's a true Christian friend. Not somebody telling us what we want to hear all the time. Hey, you need to test that with scripture. You're going, you're going out there. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The second thing we see is he gave them power over unclean spirits. In Matthew 10, the parallel scripture, he tells them to heal, to resurrect, and to do it freely. Let me say that again, freely. How did it get to be where churches charged for baptism, charged for things that were given out freely in, when the church was started? I mean, listen, it happens in a lot of houses of worship, but I'm just concerned about what's happening here. Can we really charge? I mean, wasn't it Simon the sorcerer who wanted the power that the apostles had, and he wanted to pay them for it? Right? And, and he was rebuked by Peter. Somebody correct me on that. I'm coming and going off. I think I, think I got it all right. Uh, but the point is that there were those that wanted this religious power, and they wanted to attach a dollar sign to it. And that was problematic. 
So Jesus said, do it freely. But the second point, really, that I wanted to make is that Jesus gave them power to do these things. He empowered the disciples, and he'll empower us with a force that's greater than any force in the physical world. Remember, we cannot use physical weapons to fight spiritual battles. Keep that in mind. Can't use physical weapons to fight spiritual battles. The third point, eight and nine. It says, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Basically, what he's telling them is bring the bare essentials. Boy, how how ministry has changed over 2,000 years. Some are of the opinion that you have to have talented people, big tithers, and buku technology. Well, talk to Pastor Paul and I. The more we try to upgrade with technology for the growing needs of our church, it comes with more headaches. It's not a bad thing, but it's not necessary either. And we have to keep that in mind. Um, There's been a lot of conversations with uh, large church pastors and pastors' wives who longed for the days when things were simple and less complicated. So with big comes bigger problems. By today's standard, if you took the name Jesus and the disciples out, some Christian ministries today would look at that and go, huh, that's a failed ministry. It's doomed before it gets off the ground because it doesn't have the big bells and whistles that they're expecting and that they're used to. Let me ask you a question. What if we turned off the power, kind of sat in a circle, prayed and just read the word? Would that be enough? If the answer is no, that necessitates a heart check. There's a book that K.P. Yohannan wrote. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with K.P. Yohannan, Gospel for Asia. This book was called Revolution in World Missions. And he is Eastern Indian, comes from India. These are his people. He loves them. He wants to see them come to Christ. He has an incredible ministry over there. There's a lot of poverty. They don't have the creature comforts that we have. Well, he, he got the attention of some Western ministries, and they flew him to the United States put him in a beautiful hotel, air conditioning, computers, all the latest stuff. And he read the book. Nicole, I, know you, I don't know if you got to that part yet. If you read his book, he says that his heart started to change. He lost the eye of the tiger for the Indian people, so to speak, right? He lost that drive and that hunger, and he had to go back to where he started because he got really used to the comforts of the Western church. Isn't that amazing? It took the drive out of him. So we, we really need to, that's why I love the scripture. I love just going back and saying, let's get back to basics. You know, if, if I st- stop using this Bible, look out. Because that's when we can start to, to come apart here. This is important. Now, there also are extremes. And just this is important because a lot of people ask me these different questions. Right? Here it says, bring the bare essentials. But... He did have them bring some essentials, didn't he? But he had them bring the bare essentials. Some think it's faithless to take their child to the doctor. And I think that's not right. And you read in the paper of, I don't think it's a good witness either, of Christian families. It's very simple. Something happens. Take the kid to the emergency room. You know, my my son had, um, was like 104, 105 when he was young and had him in the car seat. 
And I could see in the rearview mirror that his eyes were starting to bounce, like they were going back into his head. And I'm, let me tell you something, I had my pedal to the metal, <laughs> heading all the way to the hospital. I was flying. I'm glad I didn't get pulled over. Um, but the bottom line is that I was praying the whole time, but I was heading to the hospital. Now, there's been times where I've laid my hands on people and they immediately got better. It doesn't happen all the time. I think probably so we won't build up a sense of pride. So there's this, there's this balance. And I, this is a contractual legal term. Do you ever hear of the right of first refusal? When I deal with God all the time, I'm like, Lord, you have the right of first refusal. And I always give him the first opportunity. But sometimes he heals in a different way. Sometimes it's going to be through somebody else. Sometimes it's a test of our faith. I will tell you this, there's something inherently stupid about tempting God. And I don't say that word often, stupid, from the Bible or from the pulpit. By handling venomous snakes on purpose and calling that faith. That's just idiotic. You know, I I had a stomach through about four or five minutes of that show, Snake Salvation. There was no gospel in that. All these people do is they dance around with venomous snakes and they go into like their trance. And the guy was bit eight times and I think that was a warning from God. The ninth time it killed him. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but at the same time, that's not faith. That's foolish. We need to have a balance because we can look weird to the world. I don't think the snakes wanted to become Christians either after that service, but I'm just saying. Boil it down to this. We need to trust God more than our provisions, our abilities, our provisions, our bank accounts, um, our computers, right? We still have to live in this world, though, and there's that balance. So the fourth point, verse 10, Jesus says, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Basically, stay where you're welcomed. Remember, these were missionaries. They were a little bit of everything. They were pillars of the church, the disciples. They were missionaries. They were evangelists. This is how the church was starting to form. And then God uh, allowed some more organization later on in the book of Acts. You see councils that had started up. Actually, this question was asked in the Berean room about how do we know that you know, this scripture is right. And, and we, t- we went through the whole kind of history of the church. So the disciples did a little bit of everything. But he basically told them, don't bounce around. Don't bounce around. If you're welcomed, be hospitable. There's also a principle... I believe that as believers, just average believers, we can follow. And it's, it's a maxim that we use in the church. It's called grow where you're planted. Grow where you're planted. Remember, the disciples were not to leave unless the ministry opportunity dried up. It was a, a pastor that I know, and, and this, is, this is a problem in Calvaries. It be, it's becoming like the seeker movement in some Calvaries, where people just constantly bounce around. Um, a little more than a year ago, I knew of a, a pastor, not close to us, not affecting us, young pastor starting up a new ministry. And he was able to get people that were serving for him, and they were Calvary people, the roving congregation. And I called them up and I said, brother, I love you. I'm just trying to tell you, you're the new flavor of the month. When the next guy starts up a year later, they'll leave you. Sure enough, what I said came to pass. They were, they were helping this guy and they took off. And, and there's just an element, even in Calvary Chapel, that they're always bouncing around, bouncing around. Listen, if somebody's preaching heresy, leave. If something happened that was pretty dastardly, leave. However, 
if you're on your eighth, ninth, and tenth church and you're scrutinizing us, you're not going to, trust me, you won't be happy here. Because people forget. They don't look in the mirror and they say, maybe there's something wrong with me. Instead, they just go, you know, and we had somebody leave not too long ago. Every church that they went to was terrible. And I'm thinking, it's just a matter of time before you don't like us either. You know, it's a heart check. But don't bounce around. So these are principles. I call it the Christian wanderlust. There are some, they're always wandering. They're never satisfied. They're always moving around. Grow where you're planted. The fifth point. When he talked about if they don't receive you when you depart, shake the dust under your feet. And they did that literally. It was a kind of a Hebrew type of thing that they did. That even the dust, click, 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 click. Let me leave even the dust from this town here. I don't want to take anything with me. It made a strong statement. But remember, they're, they're rejecting the gospel. And he said it'll be more tolerable in Sodom and Gomorrah because the Messiah is here and he's doing miracles and they're still rejecting So the fifth point is don't cast pearls before swine. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. Um, We know that even 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if we're not to attend or tend to or be hospitable to those that preach Antichrist, anything against um, the Son of God or anything against the Trinity, we're not to entertain them. And we have to shake the dust off of our feet. The sixth point, verse 12, and this is really important. It says, so they went out and preached that people should repent. Repentance. You turn on the TV and you look at the Christian TV ministries. If you do that, take note of how many of them actually talk about repentance. I guarantee you it's very low because it it doesn't fit with their shtick. It doesn't fit with their, you know, you tell people something that's hard to digest. They might not send a check. Um, but repentance is very important. If we're making a cake, repentance is up there. It's the flour, it's the water, it's the eggs. It's important and it's non-negotiable because seriously, you go to somebody and you say to them, you need to be saved by Jesus. What are you talking about? I've never been arrested. I never cheated anybody. I'm upstanding in my community. What do I got to be saved from? If you don't teach them about sin and judgment and repentance, there's good reason for them to blow us off and ignore us. You know, what what, what is this Jesus stuff? What's your problem? Repentance is very important because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because God's perfect. And he loves us and he wants us into his heaven, but we can't get there unless we repent. We have to stop walking in the world. We have to stop walking in our self-directed ways and realize what God says is, is truthful. The word confession so we, we think of a confessional booth and there's a priest or somebody on the other end. But confession just means to agree with. Homologia, same word. We say with God, you know what? What I did yesterday, I see it in the scripture, it's wrong. I know it's wrong and I'm, I'm really broken up about this. I, I, not confession is just going through your life as I did before I was a Christian. I just did whatever I wanted. There was no sin. Sin was fun to me. So keep that in mind. Repentance is very, very important. And we even as Christians need to repent because then we begin, we can become self-deluded in our thoughts. The seventh point here is from Matthew 10. Basically, he really goes into the fact that we're preaching salvation to a world that doesn't want to be saved. And he said, basically, to expect hatred. And I think what's worse as believers is when we get it from those close to us. 
Jesus spoke about familial ties where some get saved and some are resistant and there's contention and strife within the family. And in a sense, that's normal. Now, we want to love and, and we want to be um, keep praying. And, and I've been blessed that many members of my family have been saved. Some still aren't, you know, my extended family. Um, but I still love them. They're still related to me. I still go to events. Uh, but there, there's contention sometimes. And I'll tell you this. Sometimes, if, well, I know if we're really doing it right, the contention may be in the sphere of the Christian community. Carnal Christians, what are you, what are you, are you better than us? You know, why are you trying to better yourself in a sense? Why can't you stay like the rest of us? You know, we have all our little secrets. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of thing. You know, what, what are you trying to, you know, and they get threatened. If you try to better yourself, if they feel convicted, but they don't want to go with the conviction. If we want to be loved by all and are succeeding at that goal, that most likely we're compromising with some of God's truths because it doesn't jive with Scripture. Now, we're pretty much done with the scriptural portion for this morning. I want to go through quickly some nine points of discipleship because discipleship is important and it really ties into this. Discipleship is something that if it's not practiced, churches die. You know, what's the sense in going and learning, going to Bible college and going to service and amassing all this knowledge if we're not going to pour it into somebody else and help them in a practical way? So nine points of discipleship. Because if a person says, and people do this, I want to be discipled, and they don't fully understand what it means, they can become disillusioned. So the first one, accountability. Right? Accountability. We have it in our professions. We have it in our relationships. We need to have it in the body of Christ. That's important. Number two, discipleship means we lose our anonymity. We lose our, we're not anonymous anymore. We step forward. And here's the thing. How do you step forward and say, I want to serve God, and then go back into being, blending into the, the fabric? Oh, I want to be unknown again. It's kind of one or the other. Jesus says, when you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Three, Transparency. Now, if I asked, and I had a show of hands, how many people want their, their pastors and elders and wives to be transparent? Everybody would raise their hand. Oh, but what about you? No, I don't want that. It's cool that the pastor lives in a fishbowl, but I don't want to live in that fishbowl. That's a little hypocritical, right? Transparency. If you're being discipled by somebody and they're doing it right, they will pry into your personal business at times because they love you. Fourth, the expectations that the person being discipled will walk on their own. What would you do if you had a, a toddler who was at the age of learning how to walk and every time they went to get up to walk, you picked them up, carried them. Oh, they're going to walk again, pick them up, carry them. The person, the kid would never learn how to walk. So in a spiritual sense, there's going to be times where a person discipling you will step back and see if you can take a few steps on your own. That's important. Strengthening your spiritual legs. Here's another one. A person discipling you may pass you off at some point to another discipler. Now, this played out perfectly, and I just love the story. Remember, John Mark wrote this gospel, but he went on the missionary journey with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And what happened? Oh, I can't take it. He left early. Well, Paul was a little upset about that. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, said, oh, Next, next journey, let's try taking John Mark again. Paul said, absolutely not. And there was actually, it caused a division between the Apostle Paul, this is an Acts, and Barnabas. And Barnabas says, well, I'm taking him. So he takes John Mark, 
And the Apostle Paul took Silas, and they went their separate ways. Now, I think in Mark's instance, he realized that if he blew it this time, probably nobody would take him again. And I would say that in his mind, this was the last gas before the turnpike. For those of you who are in New Jersey, understand that. Last gas before the turnpike. This one i got to make count because it's, I'm not going to get another shot. I'm not going to get another bite at the apple. So Mark was passed off to Barnabas. He did the right thing eventually, and then Paul reaccepted him. And then John Mark, what? He writes the Gospel of Mark that we're reading today. I find something else fascinating, too. You can take any of these principles and take them into your jobs, take them into your life, take them into even how we deal with our children. I've been a field training officer as a police officer for the last 10 years, give or take a year or two. And they give me these young guys and, you know, you pour into them, you got to train them right and all that kind of stuff. But I'm looking at this and I'm saying, we employ this in the police department. They don't realize it, (laughs) but, but this is good stuff. All right, I'm done with you. Send you to another field training officer. What do you think? Compare notes, write up an evaluation, right? It's an important job. Number six, at times you will hear negative things about yourself. If you're being discipled by somebody who's doing their job. Today, today I see a lot of people that they just, they can't handle anything negative. Because we live in a celebrity culture. Two celebrities years ago was Lindsay Lohan. Now it's um, Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber, guy and a girl. And they're, they're on a path to destruction. You know what's really sad? The people that surround them, they don't love them. They're handlers. They use them. They suck as much money out of them as possible, and then they're shriveled up and they're left at the side of the road. And I'm just going to be graphic. Some of them end up swinging in a hotel room or or with a needle stuck in their arm because the people around them don't love them. All they keep doing is build up their egos and building up their egos until the bubble pops. And you know what? As Christians, we need to love each other to not treat each other like that either, to say the hard things when it needs to be said. Now, there's times that um, I'll preach and I'll, I'll invoke the name of Pastor Luis. I see a few chuckles back there. Some of you have been discipled by Pastor Luis. And he's hard, and he's still hard, and he's not going to change. And I'll come, maybe today I'll call him up on the phone and say, Hey, Luis, I talked about you today. And I'll hear on the other end, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> He doesn't even ask me what I say because he knows what I'm going to say, you know. And he's not changing. But we will hear hard things about ourselves. When we go into discipleship and we have somebody come alongside of us, do we expect that they're just going to tell us wonderful things? Are we God's gift to discipleship? If that's the case, we don't need somebody above us. And I heard this quote too. The moment that we stop being teachable is the moment that we should stop teaching. I still have to be teachable. I haven't arrived. It's, trust me, ask my wife. I'm not perfect. <laughs> hey, that was, that was a little bit too loud. I didn't like that. Don't ask him. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. Seven, expectations to apply biblical principles to your life and expectations that you produce fruit. Now, that's John 15. As a matter of fact, John 15 is so strong that Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If the branch doesn't produce any fruit, which is almost impossible for a walking Christian, but there's some people in the church that are not really Christians. They're just in the church for different reasons. If there's no fruit, Jesus says, I cut off the branch. It's, it'll, be, it'll wither up 
and, and shrivel and is thrown into the fire. That's not a good picture. I don't care how you want to translate it. That's not a pretty picture. So there's going to be an expectation at some point to produce fruit. Number eight, there'll be an expectation to apply training in the form of serving. We can never consider ourselves mature. I don't care how old we are if we don't serve. We must serve the Lord in some capacity. Bless you. (laughs) Number nine, life may become more challenging. And when we step up to the plate, and I've seen this, to serve the Lord, sometimes life becomes more difficult. And some in their incipient stages will say, why did I do this? Why did I raise my hand? And I try to encourage them, stick with it. Because the Lord is testing you. You've raised your hand. You want to be better. The Lord needs to do something. He needs to increase your faith. He needs to strengthen you. He needs to help you to become more patient with others, to be more compassionate. And it just doesn't happen by you stepping up and saying, I'm here. You go through this refining process. I'm going to actually talk to all my leaders. If anybody has to be discipled, that we read these nine points to them just so there's an understanding so the person doesn't become disillusioned halfway through it. So, when we read the scripture together, it can be an eye-opener. If you're new to the Bible, you might have said, you might say to me, this is not what I expected. I hear all the stories about Jesus, but I've never heard this. Because this is the whole counsel of God, as the book of Acts tells us. The Christian walk is not about us. It's not about ego-driven ministries. It's not church is supposed to be Disneyland or a big social club. It's about a relationship with God, a true, solid, honest-to-goodness relationship with God. It's about discipline. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about counting the cost. I would just ask you, as we go through this series the next few Sundays, pray about stepping up to the plate. Pray about raising your hand and say, you know what, I want to be used by God. And I know God will be gentle with me. I know he'll be firm. I know I'll go through the spin cycle and the washing machine spiritually. But I know that in the end, I will come out better than I was before. So I would just say that it's not an exclusive club. In any church, we can certainly use more help. We're reaching out to the community, giving out food. Things are growing. We've got different homeless ministries. Um, we'll, we'll plug in somewhere. Trust me. It's not an exclusive club. And certainly we would welcome anybody who says, I want to be a pastor or an elder. I want to be a ministry leader. You know, this is my desire, and and we'll help you get to that end. So you pray about that. Um, Definitely pray about it. I mean, this summer, the weather is changing, and it's been kind of gloomy, and it's it's been unpredictable. And some people, even Christians, they, they do their whole schedule around the weather and what they want to do, and not considering what God wants. No, I just would ask you this morning to consider that. Let's pray.